Only a podcast. Just keep repeating it's only Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host. It's my little buddy. It's Hank. Say hi to the people, Hank. Hey, how you doing, cocksucker? <laughs> I heard you had a date with a redwood. Yeah, she really busted my pine nuts. Okay, I'll, that's, that's fine. That's an okay, <laughs> terrible dummy joke. Had to think about that for a minute. That was a fucking struggle. I don't know. Welcome to Death by DVD, where uh, I'm being replaced by uh, a dummy on this on this episode. Uh, you've always been the dummy. You've been waiting to tell that joke all day. You've been trying to set it up for hours, and there it finally is. Yes, oh. I've been sitting here molding in my chair. How can I really get Hank tonight? I'm going to call him a dummy. <laughs> That's because this episode is not only another double feature episode, it's all about dummies. Dummies with dicks and dummies with attitudes. <laughs> sure, I guess yeah. dummies with dicks. <laughs> I thought um, I had something to go with that, but I, I, <laughs> I didn't. I did not. But first, we're going to bring something back. We're going to bring it back from the dead. It's recently seen because I've watched things recently now that I have time to watch things. Do you yeah. want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Uh, sure, I'll go first. I watched a 2012 movie, which I don't know why everything I see is usually old as shit. I have no excuse like you. You have a valid excuse as to why you don't get to keep up with current titles. I don't know. I am just a dummy. We'll add in the womp, womp, womp sound right there. But I watched a Ben Wheatley movie, and I think it's the first time I finished a Ben Wheatley movie, which I shouldn't say that because it sounds offensive and like he's not a great director and I, I don't know I really enjoyed what I saw Sightseers from 2012 it's it's a comedy but I didn't really take it as that throughout the entirety of the movie until the very very end which possibly is the most horrific sequence in the whole movie and that's finally where I just um I don't know broke out with a, a lot of inappropriate laughter but the movie is about a couple who goes on a holiday. They rent a caravan, and they go on a holiday throughout the English countryside. And uh, the first death is accidental. And after that, they kind of go on a killing spree, which eventually ends in a pretty hysterical sequence. It's got just a lot of substance to it that I wasn't expecting going into it. I found this on the Criterion channel, mind you, so I thought I was getting into something a little bit more wispful and artsy. And was really pleasantly surprised, because it's it's not so much nihilistic as, I mean, it's definitely got a message. I personally kind of took it as a dark sort of thing. I mean, not so much don't trust anyone or people aren't who they appear to be, but I don't know. I guess it is nihilistic, because nothing really fucking matters by the end of this movie. But that's maybe what makes it so funny and makes it so dreadful at the same time not such uh, an anxiety attack of a movie but just a pleasant experience and nihilism and just really well done black comedy it's produced by edgar wright so it's really got that twist and flavor to his style of movies not as quite funny as Shaun of the dead style humor but i don't know if you can find any sort of humor out of other human beings being savagely murdered then you'll understand i guess the black nature of this but uh yeah ben wheatley sightseers I'll give it a solid three. Well, I watched a little movie 
from a director known as Roger Avery, a man who hasn't made a movie for a long time. Uh, he co-wrote the Academy Award-winning screenplay for Pulp Fiction. He's been on vacation. Uh, he was, yeah, he's been gone for a little bit. Less said about that, the better. Um, he made Roger a movie Avery. that I loved from like 2003, I believe, is uh, based on the uh, Brett Easton Ellis. Is that how they pronounce that guy's fucking name? I think so. Ellis? That's Ellison? how I say it. Okay, whatever. It's the American Psycho guy. He wrote a book called Rules of Attraction, and Roger Avery made a movie about that, and I love that movie. I think that movie is fucking awesome. I think that movie is way better than the book, because I've read the book, and the movie is way better than the book. Um, he just recently came back with a movie called Lucky Day, and um, it's fucking embarrassing. It's an <laughs> embarrassing movie, man. It is like... Okay, I know you're famous for writing Pulp Fiction and Killing Zoe and a couple other things, but why would you go back and, like, it's still 1994, and people are still interested in crime movies that have surf rock soundtracks. It's like he hasn't progressed as a filmmaker since then. Um, it probably has a lot to do with what he could get the money to make and some other things, but it was just, like, like a, a crime caper movie with surf rock and Crispin Glover doing a French accent. And I love Crispin Glover, but it's just I don't it just seemed incredibly pointless. The story didn't really have a point. Uh, um and it was just like it just fueled felt really dated more than anything. It just felt like it was from that early nineties um reservoir dogs uh kind of era of direct to video crap of where everybody was making crime films with people in So you mean white it feels like a Roger Avery movie? It was just it was bad. What? So you mean it feels like a Roger Avery movie? Well, I mean, it feels like a 1990s Roger Avery movie, but I figured he could, like... I mean, Rules of Attraction is, like, incredibly interesting in a lot of different ways. Like, as a filmmaker, it's interesting in a lot of different ways. And this was just really kind of bland. It was pretty. Um, the photography was pretty well done, but everything else, the script was just... Like I said, it's fucking embarrassing. It was just like I can't believe somebody like committed this to paper in two thousand like nineteen, what eighteen, whatever the hell he wrote, unless he pulled a script out of his ass from way back in the day, because that's really what it felt like. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna give Lucky Day to it two two out of five, maybe. <laughs> it's just not very good. Yeah, you. Uh, the only thing I can say about this film is you had made me aware of it, and unfortunately one of my beloved cats passed away, and that night I sat down and watched the trailer for this movie and figured, you know what, I'm just going to go cry. I'm not going to... I'm going to be happier crying than sitting down and committing to this. And what really kicked me in the dick was fucking that French accent. That was just abhorrent. I know he can He's not even French. That. Well, It's uh, stated in the film he's not French, that oh. he just does a French accent because he's a hitman who's the best in the world, and he does a French accent because he wants to. That doesn't like, sound what? funny at all. That sounds yeah, like a waste really of Crispin shit. Glover. It's a lot of bad stuff like that in the movie. I, I think what is the most offensive thing is a waste of Crispin Glover with so much talent and so much potential and just being such a unique person. Every time he's wasted, uh, an angel falls from the heavens and burns to death in the atmosphere. It is an atrocity. Like fucking that Charlie's Angels movie. You could have done so much with him, man. And what, he does a little bit of weird kung fu, which admittedly it's kind of cool seeing Crispin Glover do a little bit of kung fu, but fuck off. He could have done so much more. So much more. Yeah, but at least Crispin got paid and he can take that money and 
do whatever the fuck he does with and make his art with that money. Keep doing Crispin Glover stuff, Crispin Glover. We approve of whatever it is you're doing out there. I don't mind you getting paid. I'll just put it no. that way. You get paid, do your art stuff that I consider interesting and everything else you're in, I don't really give a shit about because we both know you don't particularly care about it. Whenever I see Giuseppe Andrews in something, I feel pretty much the same way. I don't know what you're doing, and you're out there in somewhere America's Midwest trailer parks, but I approve of it, and I hope you're doing well. Godspeed. None of this has anything to do with tonight's show, except for the fact that one of the actors, one of the stars and lead talents in uh, the film that you just spoke of, happens to be in Stargate. Rodney McKay, because this episode is all about <laughs> Stargate, Stargate Atlantis. Yeah, we're talking about Stargate tonight. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Stargate episode, ladies and gentlemen. Finally. No, yeah, I'm I'm making that up. But uh, Rodney McKay, who is a character in Stargate, was played by David Hewlett, is in one of the movies we're going to talk about tonight. How about that to connect and get the show on track? I am the master of segues. Yes, and both this film and Stargate and The Lucky Day Scanners They're all Canadian too? productions because he's a Canadian actor and he's in a he's in Scanners too as well. Everybody yeah. remembers Scanners too, don't they? <laughs> that wonderful masterpiece. He was in Cube. He's in a lot of stuff. Um, but he stars in this film called Pin P I N, and it's based on a book um, from 1981 by Andrew Niederman. Nieder Niederman. Yeah, I can never remember his name. I've read the book. I read it uh, some years ago. And I I tracked down the movie to watch it, and I actually had heard of the movie first, um, because and I just thought the the concept of it was very interesting. But I happened to find the book in a used bookstore, read the book, was uh, very interested in what that book was, watched the movie, and the movie is a pretty accurate representation of what that book is. Um, we'll get into a little different specifics here and there, but for the most part, it is that book transferred into a film. It's just some of the seedier things have been kind of left to the side because it is told in first person um, from the character of Leon's perspective, sort of. I mean, we can get into that a little bit later, but um, the lead character of Leon, but also, so there's a lot of internal dialogue in the book of what he's thinking during these things. So you can't really translate that into a movie unless you do narration, which usually completely fucks the whole film up. So this is just more of a, like a meat and potatoes version of what that book is. It just kind of transpires the events that happen. You just don't get all the, the, like the juicy, like mental details of what's going on. Didn't director Sandor Stern do one of the Amityville movies? I know he wrote the screenplay for the Amityville horror, but I think he directed The Evil Escapes, one of the uh, the, the non-house Amityville movies, if that gives any more merit to to the movie pen. He's uh, like I think he's did a lot of TV, maybe. I'm not I read up on Sandor Stern a long time ago and I can't remember, but he seemed like kind of an interesting character who didn't really do a lot of like filmmaking but did a lot of other interesting stuff. I've completely forgotten all of it though. Well, for the most part, he only did maybe two or three episodes per television show he worked on, but he did work for an excessive amount of 70s and 80s television. Then he did do the screenplay for the original Amityville Horror and um Scrolling through the old IMDb here now, he did The Evil Escapes, wrote and directed it. I think one of the better Amityville sequels. 
Um, uh, Pin is kind of where this whole double feature came together for me. Uh, the whole concept behind it and ventriloquism uh, I've always found to be an incredibly creepy thing, and it just suddenly brought up, hey, well, there's magic, remember magic, which I don't know why I've always had the idea in my head that I, I didn't particularly care for that film, that, um, I, I don't know, I've always felt there was something wrong with it, and we'll eventually get to that later. But both of these combined, and, and what I think makes the double feature out of these is the lead characters and we'll as i said get into magic when we get there but leon is a unique character he's somebody that doesn't really realize what he's doing and uh, throughout the entire movie you're led to believe that he's schizophrenic which i don't entirely think is true but what makes it i don't know scary is just the fact that this character isn't aware of what they're doing so much as with magic, you kind of know that they're in the driver's seat, that they know what's going on. They're in control to an extent. Well, I mean, to get into the plot, it's not just kind of a atypical um, ventriloquist dummy type situation. What's going on in this story is Leon and his sister Ursula are children to a doctor who is married to a neat freak, crazy-ass wife. And he has a um, visible man... Uh, model in his uh, doctor's office. If you remember what that is, it's the uh, you know the uh, transparent thing where you can see all the veins, you can see the muscle structure, and you can take pieces out of it that you'd see in a science lab. I guess I'm telling my age here because that, that concept is completely foreign to me and I think is one of the more unique things, especially now with Penn being a dated movie, uh, it being released in 1988, is that's not really a thing anymore. I've never seen one, so I mean that's not to say that it's well, not that's so much the, a thing. Well, that's the catch in this because they don't really make them that fucking big. That's the big difference. Mostly those those models were very like small. They're like tabletop models, or the larger ones would have the arms and the legs cut off, and it would just be like a torso with a head. Um, and you can take pieces of it out, and you know they use them in like biology labs to, to teach students. Um, but this one is a life size head, feet, legs, the entire goddamn rip big roar. old dong. Yeah, and it's biologically accurate in all ways, shapes, and forms. And the doctor is a ventriloquist as well. And he uh, uses pen to talk to children with, to explain and teach them about their bodies. The doctor's also a bit of a psychopath and uh, like t like tells, talks to his own children using pen and uh, describes medical procedures to them using pen. And it kind of confuses their, and what it breaks down to is a, these two children are incredibly abused by their parents the entire time. It's not so much that they're sexually abused as much as they are like, um, almost puritanically mentally abused. Uh, like I said, the, the mother who's like a OCD, like psychopath has really got them into like, they have to eat over their plates as to not spill Here's crumbs a great anywhere example. on the table. I mean, this is inside the movie, so it's a clear example of how awful these parents truly are. But eventually Ursula becomes pregnant. Her own father administers the abortion, but not before offering Leon, her brother, to stay and watch because there's educational content to be had within seeing this. That's pretty fucking psychotic and, and yeah. just abysmal. And if that's yeah, not it's, abuse, it's, I don't know what is. It's that level of abuse. It's not so much of a smack you around type of abuse. It's more or a sexual abuse. It's more of just like mentally abuse, mental abuse through the act of like almost coldness and being incredibly way too scientific with your children. And he teaches them about the need, a.k.a. sex, that eventually you're going to grow up in. Uh, People get thirsty sex. for sex just like they do for water. It's creepy. Yeah. 
pin's really creepy in the movie because it it doesn't move particularly anything. It's just hearing this like kind of high pitched ventriloquist voice coming out of it. And Leon develops this sort of obsession with Penn that he thinks Penn is alive and is talking to him at times. I think he develops this obsession from his father, though, because you're keyed into, as when they're still children, that their father speaks to Penn on a regular basis just when no one else is in the room. He'll he'll run questions to him about what to do with patients and treats it pretty much like a living person. So I think somebody young witnessing that... Adopting that mindset would be incredibly confused because later on throughout the film, their father character, played by the the great Terry O'Quinn, starts getting really, really angry with Leon when he talks and he's around Penn. So it's like he sees something within himself. And too, I thought something was always a bit strange that you're shown that Penn um, gives the daughter, Ursula, presents on her birthday, but Leon never seems to be favored. He never even seems to be favored by his parents. Even at the beginning of the film, the daughter's asked, well, count backwards from 10 or count to 10, something like that. And then Leon is told to count backwards from 100 with sevens, which it's a, it's a pretty different task from what the sister that they, I don't know if they're twins or it's just no, assumed. No, she's younger than he is. So, I mean, they're still in the same age group, but maybe stair step, like a year or two. So still one task. It, it just seems in my observation that Leon is favored a lot less and that he gets well, a lot more of Well, as the, the male in the family, I'm sure it's been put upon him to be strong, to be a lot more, uh, be smarter, be more independent, and she is going to be a lot more demure and blah, blah, blah. But she turns out she gets a little slutty in high school. Her name really is Buck, Leon and she off. likes to fuck. Yeah, and um, really what we're, like, it starts to allude upon in the book as well as the movie somewhat. It's not as heavy as it is in the book that there's a heavy incest angle going on here, not so much on Ursula's end, but on Leon's end, that he doesn't want any outsiders into his family. He even eventually starts writing poetry about going to have to commit rape to uh, fucking let his seed live on. And basically he's talking about raping his sister. And in the book, there's a very strange scene of when her boyfriend kind of like, you know, kind of abandons her for the night. Leon wants to do like what they used to do back in the day. Basically he forces her to have sex with fucking pen with this dummy. He wants to watch her fuck this dummy, which he does. And it's an incredibly graphic scene and explained in graphic detail. So that's one of the fucked up things in the book. Um, but he never actually like touches his sister. He does get involved in some of her sexual exploits with, um, with other people a little bit, but he never like, and like acts out the feelings towards his sister. It's he's almost very impotent in a lot of ways. He just wants to watch like a complete and utter fucking creep. But eventually the parents die and Penn comes to live with them in the house. And he just full time just talks to Penn all the time and throws his voice and pretends like and he, he doesn't know any goddamn difference. Where does he get the fake pen skin? I've always wondered that. What is that? I don't know. That's, That's not in the some... book. That, no, that's just some like some bullshit to add it on to make Penn a Spoiler little bit alert. which I think t- actually kind of takes away from the character a little bit, makes him a little less creepy. Well, at that point when he's given the skin, the character really goes into the back seat. It it turns into overdrive with Leon's psychosis because until really, I I think really until Leon gives him the skin, you've got that old switcheroo. You don't know what's going on, and there's a little bit of angling that. Possibly Penn is a haunted doll, or maybe he's a psychic doll, and you've got that misdirection with the the parents' death, which I did we neglect to mention that the parents die in a car accident because 
The doctor has to go back to his office, and he finds Leon talking to Penn, and it greatly disturbs him. And I find that a really interesting sequence, because that's what he does. You're clearly shown earlier in the movie that he does his prognosis with uh, Penn, he talks to Penn, he treats Penn pretty much as Leon does. So I kind of took it as he sees something in his son that he knows is very well dangerous. He doesn't want his life repeated, yes. Oh, well, yeah, he makes those same statements. You know, it's, it's time for college, and I noticed that you haven't been filling out applications, and Leon is very happy with his environment. He wants to stay sort of king of the hill to the extent that he dresses like his father. He sort of acts like him and takes on that almost persona. He seems to not even really have a persona of himself, which in this film, it, it's kind of stressed and said as the sister begins working Ursula at the uh, library, that he's a paranoid schizophrenic. And I just don't, I don't know, I don't buy that. And at the time period in, in 1988, I can understand and see why that was the diagnosis. But uh, just looking into ventriloquism, 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 whatever, looking into talking with a doll on your lap, it's a really weird art. Like most ventriloquists, not most, all famous ventriloquists began and learned the art before puberty, they learned how to throw their voice and kept that before puberty, which is pretty much astutely shown in this film that Leon adopts the habit of throwing his voice and becoming Penn as a child. But then you get into that almost more psychotic state where he just truly does not believe it's him. And it's, it's, it's addressed several times with Ursula throughout the movie that she'll call him a doll and, and Leon phys gets physical with her. He slaps her at one point when they're just children. Later on, he, he threatens to, after their parents die and they're teenagers, fucking beat her over just bringing up the fact that Penn might not be real. So Ursula definitely is allowing some of this behavior to happen, but I, I just don't think he's schizophrenic. I mean, maybe like a disassociative personality disorder yes, he sort probably of thing. Has, yes, he probably has more of a split personality disorder. What's not mentioned in the movie, but as um, David Hewlett's performance does point out, if you notice when he starts getting nervous or agitated, he starts like rubbing his hands. And in the book, it mentions every time that he, um, that basically it's like alluded to the fact that Penn is, possibly not a living person or you know this living thing that it's a figment of his imagination his hands start going very numb um and that kind of leads towards the end of the the ultimate end of what the story is that he like he starts growing cold and stiff the more that pen um is taken out of his own like his reality but basically what happens is ursula gets a boyfriend named stan who in the book is a vietnam vet with a wooden leg which isn't particularly integral to the story. They change it to a watch in the uh, the movie, but um. Well, wait, she gives him a wooden leg in the in the no, book. No, he had a wooden leg. Oh, but so she but, gives him a watch in the movie to replace the wooden leg. Yes, yeah, so she can find something when Stan turns up missing later. Oh, because then she finds his wooden leg um, <laughs> in the uh, the book. <laughs> what is this? A fucking pirate story? <laughs> Sorry, He's a Vietnam vet with one leg. What are you going to do about but what, it? They're just like walking around the house and find a wooden leg by the wood pile? I, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, because basically Leon, because his sister's getting taken away from him, oh, he decides fuck. to kill Stan. Uh, and it's a little bit, uh, I wouldn't call it graphic in the book, but it's a lot more methodical because he poisons him with uh, insulin. He like uh, he dopes him up and then poisons him with insulin, and he actually does kill Stan in the book. Stan does not live. Is somebody diabetic um, to make that happen, or does he just have insulin? No, if you uh, if you OD somebody on insulin, you can kill anybody because no, but I mean, where you're do you OD'd get... on insulin? Is somebody in the story <laughs> diabetic that I meant? Oh no, you're talking about the the book. I'm sorry, the book. Yeah, it does. I mean, and you can 
it doesn't matter if he's diabetic or not. You can still poison someone with insulin. You can poison anybody with insulin. Just no, because... I just meant where did the insulin come from if somebody wasn't? Oh, he, he, his father was a doctor. Oh, yeah. Don't... <laughs> I'm sorry. So I just he has watched all this. I don't know what's wrong with me. Poison this dude with insulin, and it, it's hard to trace. But then again, he has to get rid of the body. He dumps it in the river, so it still looks like a fucking murder regardless. And he covers it up really shitty because him and Penn conspire with each other and blah, 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 blah. But the uh, the ultimate ending of this film is, and the book, hmm, how, how to address it? Because in the, the movie, it's kind of alluded to the fact that Ursula takes an axe to Penn after she thinks that Leon has killed Stan. Um, and then Leon kind of becomes Penn. He's frozen. Like, as I brought up earlier, his limbs get cold and numb and blah, blah, blah. Once Penn is killed, he basically becomes Penn. The personality finally just all merged into one, and he is now Penn, stuck in a wheelchair, motionless for the rest of his life. But in the book, it's a little bit more subtly... Um, I don't even know how to explain it, because it's not overt in the book, because... What they kind of point out is there's a possibility that the entire time that's been talking in Leon's voice in the book, that it wasn't Leon at all. It was Penn who was telling Leon's story. And not only is it not is it Penn telling his story, it's Ursula who has now turned her brother into Penn and is now talking to her brother and Penn in her own head, which is kind of not really thrown in the movie. I mean, you it's can really kind of convoluted. interpret that from how the movie is, but at the end of the book, it's, but again, it's not overt in the book either. That's how it is. That's just how you could possibly interpret what's what's happened at the end. I think for me, Leon is just kind of batshit. And I mean, it's not his fault. I, I think as a child and a lot of the abuse and him having uh, the comfort or wanting to have the comfort that his father had is what led him to this nature i mean it, 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 what nature over nurture i guess would be the argument here or nurture over nature that w what he was kind of forced into and it's just the behavior that you're trying to assimilate to to make things okay with he never quite seemed to grasp onto it that he got bits and pieces of it like i don't know just like a weird reflection in his damaged brain made it seem that the only thing that mattered was pen that the only thing that would make things right is pen and you know, there's the argument when Ursula is pregnant that she says, you know, this is the most devastating thing, an important thing that's ever happened to me in my life, and you want me to go talk to a doll? And he gets infuriated just because of the notion that Penn isn't real. So the psychosis is alarming here because he doesn't really know that anything he's doing is, is really wrong. He, it's not like he well, needs to No one ever, have... like, he doesn't have anybody to talk to about it because his father's ineffectual and his well, sister I mean the murdering, knows you know? that he's gone crazy even at a young age and she just kind of somewhat just like, okay, if that's how you're going to be, I'll, I'll play along with it because it'll keep you from yelling at me and it'll keep uh, the peace in the house. So I'll let you just believe this. So basically, well, she's inhibiting him to have those feelings. I mean, because his behavior becomes dangerous. He kills his aunt that comes to stay with them uh, with Penn. And he uses that as an excuse that he didn't do it, but Penn did it. And then their conversations in the attic pretty much state that it's all for the better. He doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. He thinks he's protecting his castle and his sister. And it's, her kind of fault for letting this continuously slide. I mean, once uh, you know the pirate comes into the situation, well, it's abuse through neglect, and I think that's what the family, everyone in the family, has done. It's abuse through neglect. They all emotionally neglect each other, and they like nobody calls each other shit out at all. 
um, the father could have taken the, the child, Leon, and to get him help. But at the same time, if he got Leon help, that means that he's just as fucked up and he needs help, but he can't face that in himself. So everybody's just kind of putting it to the side and ignoring the fact that everybody in this family is fucked up. And that's really where, like, everybody's abusing each other towards the end of it. Where, where, I mean, in a lot of, especially modern society, is where we're at. If you get to... If you want to get into politics, you have a lot of people who believe a lot of crazy ass shit that's not based in reality anymore. And as opposed to like getting into a skirmish with anybody like at family dinners, everybody just kind of ignores their shit because I don't want to listen to my, my uncle rattle on and on about QAnon. So whatever, even though at a certain point you're not going to be able to save him anyway, he's gone into a, a deep, dark fucking spiral and you're not going to pull him out him, like yourself. And you just, everybody just kind of ignores it and hopes it goes away and, Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it doesn't. Everybody just fucked them each other over more than anything. Well, the doctor, I think, is alarmed and frightened by the behavior in Leon because he knows it's something inside of himself, and I think that kind of is a telling moment that he gets so upset with him when he begins to mimic and he begins to talk like Penn because he knows what he's doing isn't uh, 100% healthy. But again, with my fucking studies of ventriloquism... I found out something that we'll get into a little bit later in more detail, but a lot of professional ventriloquists believe in something called uh, like momentary, and I didn't go too deep into the study of this, but like momentary schizophrenia, because essentially you're doing a two-man show with one person, so you're practicing both parts if you're a ventriloquist, no matter what you're doing, and you Is have that to why have... Jeff Dunham's such a fucking asshole? It could be, but I don't want to give him any credit <laughs> for talent. Uh, he is a ventriloquist, but I just don't care for him particularly. But you, you practice in depth, and you know exactly what's going to be said. You know what your dummy's going to be said. You have to practice with your hand up their ass, how you're going to move their eyes and their mouth. and You have everything pat down, and you know we're going to do it. But every now and again, ventriloquists say something you've never even heard before comes out of the dummy's mouth, that you've you've come into the dummy and it's uh you know temporary wow. schizophrenia you, they like you to did call what it. to the dummy <laughs> well they've be they're inside the dummy at that point you know they're they're not fucking it it's not sensual it's not you know a, a, a nice isaac hayes moment but you know you're inside the dummy or maybe the dummy's the inside dummy. them i guess that would be more appropriate the dummy would be in them because you're splitting your personality is what you're doing and you're like you're thinking. actually having a conversation with your imaginary friend and at a certain point that can really trigger people into going to some weird fucking arenas of their personality and a lot of people when they do that it's it's a way of actually enabling some of the darker aspects of their personality come out to come to the surface they won't say these things themselves but as soon as you got that that fucking dummy at your disposal, you'll just start saying some of the most obnoxious and crazy shit because it's a faster your personality you're too afraid to explore. And once you have that conduit, it there you go. You're letting it all out, and sometimes it gets really fucking dark. Well, that isn't the entire case with Leon, and that's something, too, that I feel is really interesting with uh, how Penn is laid out story-wise, that... Uh, especially when Leon is the voice and reason behind Penn, it's always supportive. It's always a helpful notion until it comes down to killing people. I mean, that's complete psychosis. But he doesn't really abuse it. He doesn't really treat it as a tool for being awful and saying all these things. And, like, his poetry, on the other hand, his weird Beowulf well, rape poetry. Well, fucking Penn loves Stan. Penn thinks Stan's, like, the shit. 
he thinks he's awesome, but then Leon's the one who wants to get rid of him, and Penn just helps him. But that's everything that Leon wants to be, and that's what Penn recognizes. So taking that ego part and separating it, and that's what Penn has become, is a separation of Leon's ego, of him Well, I think also partially that's where the, the personalities start to flip and shift at this point in the story, is Penn's become the voice of reason, and Leon's the one who's going insane, because Leon is becoming Penn and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, it's just the old switcherunskis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, that's generally where this is going. So, yeah, I mean, that's Penn. It's a really weird, deeper story than a, I, I call it a sex doll, but it's definitely not a sex doll. We didn't bring up that scene, but at the beginning of the movie, and I read this in a lot of reviews, and I don't quite get the basis for it, but one of the doctor's nurses likes to have sex with Penn, and Leon witnesses it, and a lot of people in reviews like to say that's what caused Leon's confusion. Maybe to an extent, yeah, I'm sure it really upset his troubled mind, but from what you brought up in the the novel that he likes to watch his sister have sex with Penn, you can see where these things connect and why it could have affected him, but movie-wise, I think there's a lot more push toward the notion of Abuse. I mean, it's not just that he had a fanatical mother. And in the in the movie, it's very polite. It's a French Canadian movie, so it's not screaming and yelling and not the wire hangers, mommy. But you can tell that it's not a great situation. And it's I I really want I go back to my thought that the the son in general, Leon, is just not really there to them. That Penn gives gifts to Ursula. She's celebrated. And maybe it's not so much in the novel, but I feel there is a lot of favoritism with the doctor and his daughter, and there's just something creepy about the performing your daughter's abortion and then wanting your son to watch thing, that I think the incest angle isn't maybe necessarily uh, a seedy, dark, sex or sexual incest angle, but it's it's just so tight-knit and uh, so awkwardly close, I don't know what other term to call it outside of, of incest, but just everything is too close. Their relationships are so overbearing with one another that there is no absolute freedom, so the only option Leon has had is to pretty much become in this time of no control when his parents die, his parents, as to where Ursula just doesn't know what to do. But she does the same thing. She wants to clean immediately. They both take on these uh, egos instead of a personality. They're both trying to fulfill something that's just completely gone inside of them. I think a lot of it lends itself to the idea of polite society because like the mother doesn't want her son hanging out with this one boy because he is quote unquote dirty. Uh, He's so dirty. I don't want him coming over anymore. And I think that's a lot of the problems here is there's a lot of incestuous thoughts going on in everybody's mind in this family and none of them will act on any of them because it's too polite but that doesn't mean they're not having them. So that those things manifest themselves in weird, different ideas and things that are happening in their lives. And that's where, like, the because no one's dealing with any of this shit. They just, like, harbor it and push it down inside of them. And that's where it all comes spilling out. Like in Leon writing his poetry, he really wants to fuck his sister. But he can't because it's not polite. It's not part of polite society. But he starts writing poetry about raping a woman who looks just like his sister and all this other shit. So it's just, it's all this weird projection and throwing ideas off onto other people of like, Oh no, 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 you're the one with the problem. I'm not the one with the problem, even though you're most definitely the one with the problem. 
Yeah, there are a lot more layers to pin than meets the eye, and this, again, is something we like to feature. I wouldn't say it's a lost movie, but I guess you could put this in the category of a more of a, a forgotten film. Well, it's on YouTube, if that tells you anything. It means, I mean, it came out on, like a, I think, maybe a two-disc DVD in the mid-2000s, and that's the last of it. I don't think it's out on Blu-ray. If it is on Blu-ray, it's just a conversion of that DVD. So it's just never had that proper release, and it hasn't been, like, really interpreted or played with as much as a lot of other films Who i mean for fuck's sake spookies has a release what what company released this i cannot remember i wanted to get it and i never did now the dvd no i mean originally I really mean, expensive who, what who put it out originally oh uh, fucking i have no idea i think fucking new world maybe it released the original vhs i don't know about the dvd or i don't know the original company that produced i doubt new world has the rights to it still that's just one of those things I'm thinking of, is as long as somebody can find the rights within the next few years, I'm sure something like Penn will be out in a nice lenticular, fancy Blu-ray release with a really cool slipcover, but it definitely deserves to be hunted down and seen, and I think what's more intriguing is it is, I think, a typical horror movie, and it has jump scares, it has a lot of fear, but it's a lot more thoughtful than just the aspect that it's we've It's Canadian. Been... Well, that really does help. It helps being Canadian, and it's an aspect we've spoken about in the last few episodes, uh, the thoughtful natures directors can take uh, into movies, which is funny. The example I'm going to lay out is Canadian, but on the last episode, we were talking about Rituals, a thoughtful, equally French-Canadian movie. That just must be the thing. French-Canadian movies made right or—well, this, I think, is a tax break movie, but movies made before and during the tax period, uh, and especially French-Canadian ones, they— they're pretty fucking good. They turn out to be really good. Pen, I give the highest rating to. I'll give it a five out of five out of five out of five out of five. I really have always, and not so much had a soft spot for Pen, but I've always been affected by it. It's been something that constantly makes you think, no matter how many times you see it. It's goofy and it's cheap. I mean, the beginning of the movie, you've got these little kids trying to be their most American. One's in a little Mets hat, and then the other's wearing a fucking beret. So there's a lot of Canadian-isms in it, but it's pleasant nonetheless. I have no problem with our big brother Canada. Or actually, little brother. We're older than Canada, right? Yeah. Fuck it. I went to public schools. Who knows anything about history at this point? Uh, it's more of a four out of five movie for me. It's not a full-on like masterpiece, but I mean, it's incredibly well-made movie. Um, I... The, I'd say its drawbacks are not so much acting. It's a lot of the uh, the film elements of it. It feels very much like a TV movie at times. Uh, it probably could have used some harder edged. I mean, it does have a little bit of nudity in it, but um, it, it could use a little bit harder edge to it. It's just, it, in its own way, it's a little too polite. I know the story itself is supposed to be very white bread fucking polite society but it, at the same time the movie itself is just it's a little sterile but again it has a lot to do with canadian nature and a lot of other things but uh i really enjoyed this film personally i've enjoyed it for years i read the book i'm a fucking master of pen apparently you oh are... and by the way what does pen stand for pinocchio pinocchio so there you go that's where your title gets from it's pinocchio yeah, Ursula named him Pinocchio when she was six, I believe, because his nose would never grow if he didn't tell a lie or something like that, because he never yeah, told a lie. Yeah, crazy know. shit. Whatever, it's just the Pinocchio story, basically. <laughs> it's, I, I think, a more 
esteemed Pinocchio story. But yeah, definitely on the high recommendation list from Death by DVD. Check out Pen, find it. The next movie on our double feature is the exact same fucking movie, except it's directed by <laughs> Richard Attenborough. <laughs> so pretty much, I mean, and and that was the welcome to Anthony Hopkins talking to a doll, Richard Attenborough, baby. I love the trailer for this movie. I, that's always been one of the scary things. You've got the the doll fats talking, and then his eyes move, and it switches to, and then we die at the end of the trailer. Always a lot of fun. Richard Attenborough's, I think, only foray into the horror genre. Abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, changeo, and now he is me. Hocus, pocus, we take her to bed. Magic is free. We're dead. Josephine Levine presents Magic, a terrifying love story starring Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith. Rated R. Uh, for the most part, um, he did this not long before he did Gandhi. I think he did Gandhi like maybe five or six years later. Uh, he did two um, or three pictures with Anthony Hopkins. I know directly before this, he did A Bridge Too Far, and I think the deal was if he did this and A Bridge Too Far for, uh, I can't remember the producer's first name, something, something, Levinson. Uh, if he did these two films, he'd get the production money to do Gandhi. So Magic and A Bridge Too Far funded Gandhi. And it's kind of funny because uh, Attenborough really wasn't in the lead at all to do this movie. Uh, Norman Jewison was going to do it first off with Jack Nicholson. Then eventually they wanted Gene Wilder for the role. It, it, it went all over the place until you've got a very subtle, I, I'll use the word quaint, maybe that'll fit, a quaint love story. I mean, it's a horror love story, but uh, between definitely a man and himself by Richard Attenborough, who I mean, I know people are much more familiar with him from Jurassic Park in the modern era, but, I mean, seriously, Guy was an amazing fucking actor. He did that movie with um, it was Otto Preminger's last film uh, with Nicole Williamson and uh, Iman something something about spies. I don't remember what it's called, but it was fucking great. It, great performance. <laughs> I really am a big fan of Richard Attenborough. I just can't remember the name of uh, any of his movies because I'm a dummy! Yeah! I do enjoy magic. I like. I really enjoyed the um, design of Fats because it's a different look for a ventriloquist dummy. They could have gone with your uh, pretty typical kind the of base Gabo. level design of the googly eye fucking dummy that everybody had in the seventies and eighties. But they decided to build this Anthony Hopkins duplicate with a giant head, um, which is creepy as fuck looking and has like kind of a wry sense of humor and uh, great voice acting behind it. And I think Anthony Hopkins, who they settled on for their lead, is the perfect actor for this role because the amount of manic energy he puts behind it is perfect for what this film needs. And the movie itself, though, is actually pretty beautiful to look at. Um, not so much at the beginning, but when he makes it out to the, uh, we'll just, for all extents and purposes, is called a farm where he stays with Anne Margaret, some girl he used to know back in the day that he was in love with. Um, he stays at her farm and like the guest house and like that photography is all really good. The night photography, when they go out on the boat, um, the fog, uh, the film also has Ed Lauder, who is a great character actor. If you don't remember him, he's the bald guy from a lot of things from death wish three 
from fucking everything Ed Lauder uh, and Margaret's in it Burgess Meredith pretty small cast though overall because it's mostly about Charles Anthony Emerson Winchester the third you can't leave him out Charles Emerson Winchester the third he was briefly in I the don't, movie don't remember Charles Emerson from MASH you remember Major Charles Emerson Winchester the third Who's he playing in the movie? David Ogden Steers. He is the television agent that comes with Meredith to see the performance right around the beginning of the film. Yeah, very brief. Uh, he's wearing a hairpiece. Doesn't even look like him. Well, I mean, it's just it's not one of the, the main characters. It's more of like a little background character for the most part. He has a couple of scenes. I'm not talking a couple. about he's in he like makes that it out one the scene. farm. It's a long, drawn-out part process of him having to deal with his alternate personality of fats and him basically going crazy. I don't need this doll. I'm a complete human being, and it turns out he's not a complete human being, and he really needs fats to fucking unleash who he is deep down inside. What's amazing is almost all of these beautiful sequences you're talking about were shot on a Fox soundstage, which that's pretty cool. I mean, you've obviously got the New York City shots, and there are some long shots that were done at a lake, but... Spoiler alert, something happens to Burgess Meredith that ends with him in some water being found. Shot it in a pool, like a little kiddie pool on a soundstage. And I guess that takes away some of the magic. But hey, that's the the fun behind it. I think on a whole level that Penn is a, a far more successful and interesting story. I think it's a better movie, definitely, just yeah. because it's more interesting, yes. I mean, story-wise and movie-wise, I think it is a, is a better ride, but you take the study of just this one man, and uh, you, know, you just said his inability to deal without being fat. I think there's a little bit more of a heinous nature here with what you have at the beginning of the movie. And this also was based, it was written by William Goldman um, for the screen, and it's based on a novel that came out two years previously. And the novel is from the direction of Fats. I've not read it, so this is coming from Wikipedia itself. And it delves in a little bit more to who some of these other characters that were neglected are, like Merlin, the person who trained Corky, the, uh, the character that, Anthony Hopkins is playing How to Be a Magician. And at the beginning of the film, you're kind of given a, a sequence with these two characters, Merlin and Corky, that he's really good at what he does, Corky, but he just can't get a hold of it. He can't come up with his gimmick, and he eventually adopts the Fats gimmick, which is all of his shortcomings, all of his problems are now completely annihilated when he can hold on to this dummy. And he's aware of his actions when things are happening. He's aware that he is completely in control of fats. But one of the greatest scenes in this movie between Anthony Hopkins and Burgess Meredith is when Meredith confronts him and says, can you go five minutes without him saying something stupid? And he can't. He snaps. He snaps with two minutes and 40-some-odd seconds left. But that shows you, and you know he's completely aware of his behavior. When he causes other people harm, he is completely aware of it. And again, at the beginning of the movie, he is given the ultimate dream, uh, stardom, fame, fortune, his act will be legendary. He'll go down in history as being the most famous ventriloquist magician of all time. Only if he can just take and pass a simple health test for the network so they can get him on TV and make sure he doesn't drop dead and they have, you know, like a John Ritter problem where they have to pay millions of dollars to somebody's family because the doctor well, was he, Doesn't he have to take specifically, though, like a, um, it's more of a psych evaluation where they'll let him on television he knows damn well she he will he cannot fail. pass a psych evaluation so he runs i mean and that's right at the beginning letting you know he is 100 percent aware of his problems he knows what the issue is and that really separates this from Penn because i i stand by it i don't think leon's really aware of what he's doing i think he really is convinced with his 
psychosis with his dilemma, whatever you want to call it, that Penn is real as to where Corky fucking knows Fats doesn't exist, but he is letting it happen. He's essentially his own Ursula. He is letting this behavior happen because, yeah, it's his one ticket and it will make him famous, but it's the only way he's ever been able to express himself. And I'm sure the novel goes a lot more into detail with this character, but what you are kind of allowed to know through his relationship with Anne Margaret, she says several times, you know, why were you so quiet back then? Why could you never talk to me back then? You get an allowance of knowledge that he was a sheepish, quiet, stood in the background, never spoke his mind, never stood up for himself kind of guy until he developed the personality of uh, Fats. Until that hand went up the dummy's ass, he really didn't have any freedom to be crude about it. But still, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and for me, like, I don't know if it's contained in the movie or it's just more of a personal feeling I had that I was waiting the first time I saw Magic anyway. I was waiting, like... Well, is the dummy alive? I like, I don't know if that's giving me hints that I was like, you know, like subconsciously picking up on, like, because that seems to be the typical ventriloquist dummy, like, horror story is either this person is crazy and the dummy's not alive, or the dummy is alive and we're all fucked because that's going to be the creepiest thing on earth, this little thing running around on two feet. I think Penn shares something similar, too, with that misdirection, especially during the car crash scene where he sits up and the, the sheet falls from over top of him, that for the first, I think, 20, 30 minutes of Penn, you really are led to think there is uh, something of a supernatural nature going on here, just simply for misdirection, just to, I don't know, keep the audience a little bit more entertained. And I think Magic does draw historically from several other ventriloquist movies, I guess you could say, but even things like Devil Doll from 1964, it has this whole hypnosis plot about the dummy coming to life, where strictly magic is more of an, an illusion. I mean, and I think that's, uh, again, the title of the movie is Magic, so it is somewhat fitting. I think trying to um, give you dismay or confusion as to whether Fats is alive or not is just kind of the magic, it is sort of something with the character of Corky, because he constantly is... His, the, his controlling nature of the dummy does give you the appearance that it's doing it on itself, and his connection to it also is so... It seems so much stronger than it is, it makes you wonder. Well, I think that's kind of inherent to humanity when it comes to ventriloquism. It might just be the design of the dolls. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I don't know if one person who is not creeped the fuck out by ventriloquist dummies, they're all creepy, and, like, Jeff Dunham's are just, like, they're almost like stuffed animals, so they don't particularly count. But, like, the old school ones, like Charlie McCarthy and all that shit, they're all fucking psychotically creepy. So there just seems to be this, re, um, like, recurrence of, like, stories about ventriloquist dummies coming to life. Or the ventriloquist is crazy, and, the, like, and he thinks the dummy is alive. It, that just seems to be, like, the two stories that everybody always tells of these. And I think there's some deep-down darkness within us that we're so afraid of this little wooden thing coming to life it might be the face it might be their tiny little legs i was thinking the other day how creepy it would be if a newborn baby could like walk and how odd, like odd that would look and it freaked me out man <laughs> hey, thankfully newborn babies don't have kneecaps so oh god it's like it's the creepiest thing this like nothing that short should be walking on two legs well, you certainly aren't the only person to have that feeling that in the 17th century, the Catholic Church had a French Jesuit 
do a whole test to see if ventriloquists were possibly in league with Satan, if they actually were controlling their voices and being able to possess dolls with, you know, some sort of, which is a little bit late. It's way after the witch hunting. So I guess ventriloquism really didn't pop up until the 16th to 17th century. I didn't do an in-depth fucking history on it. But the things that really kind of freaked me out with it was just some of the facts I mentioned earlier. Legitimately, not a made-up fact, Almost every famous ventriloquist learned the art before puberty, that it's just like this sacred thing that you somehow learn to throw your voice and then grow up to end up being a ventriloquist. And there is a very odd connection between people and their dolls that, well, apparently they're called dolls in England and it's dummies here and there's a great distinction between English and American ventriloquists that they don't like dummy or they don't like doll, whatever the fuck. It's it's a big doll dummy thing. But the the love people have for the, the doll, the dummy... I don't think is the concerning part here, but I think you kind of take that evolution. You take some of the older stories, like there's uh, The Great Gabo, I think, from 1929, which is pretty much just about a, a dickhead, just an asshole who is a ventriloquist and has his head just shoved far up his ass, doesn't seem to care about anyone else. He becomes so enamored and obsessed with his doll that it pushes everyone away. Then I mentioned Devil Doll. There's a, a two or three anthology films that mention it, and as you said, it always comes down to the haunted, possessed doll coming back to life. And where this, I think, kind of takes the cake with, if you want to call it a, a, a genre of films, ventriloquism horror, is the fact that it is somebody who is self-aware of their own insanity committing these attacks. One of my favorite scenes is, spoilers, the death of the wonderful Burgess Meredith, who I think gives a fucking career, like, noteworthy, amazing performance in this movie. In the scene prior to this, when he's sitting with Anthony Hopkins and they do the whole can you not talk for five minutes scene. You can see in his eyes that's not Burgess anymore. He is upset. He is watching somebody he cares for and has potential. You can see it in his eyes. You can see it in his demeanor. Beautiful character actor, for a beautiful character acting from a beautiful character actor. But following that scene, he gets killed by essentially Corky, but it's Fats, and while they're breaking down and while Corky's trying to figure out what to do, Fats yells at him, he's the villain, he's always been the villain, kill him with me, use me, and he bludgeons him to death with his own doll, but he's aware of exactly what he's doing, and then Corky is, you know, frazzled, he doesn't know what to do, because uh, Fats has gotten broken, and he's even speaking through the broken doll, my head hurts, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, that both of them have become so connected at this point, yes, he's aware of what's going on, but he has no grip on reality. It's completely just out the door, especially when he kills his fucking manager, and that really sucks, because the postman was a really great character. And uh, you keep, I mean, you've spoken very highly of Burgess Meredith's performance in this. Uh, I can't get over Anthony Hopkins in it because he is, I've never he's seen good. him this like, he's sweaty the entire movie and he's just so like, he's putting off so much nervous energy the entire time. Even when he's supposed to be relaxed, he's about to give me a fucking heart attack just because he's just so on edge this the entire time, and he just looks so uncomfortable in, in his own skin uh, because he would prefer to be in fat skin almost. Um, and I think a lot of what works in this movie is due to the performances because the story itself is not particularly that engaging. It's not like, oh, my God, another ventriloquist dummy thing. It's so much about the performance and how they pull this whole thing off is what makes it interesting. Well, let's not leave out Anne-Margaret. I mean, I think as a trifecta, once you've got Ed in the situation – all three of those talents are, are really amazing, and they all kind of are playing off of each other. And 
the tensions, especially once Ed's character begins drinking and he's dealing with his wife and the whole accusation. Did you fuck Corky? Did you fuck him last night? Did you fuck Corky? It's just amazing. You are having an anxiety attack because you're privy to the fact that he's batshit fucking insane. You know, as well as Fats, I guess, because he's kind of taunting him the entire time. He's taunting himself, I guess you should say, through Fats. You know, Fats wants to leave. He wants to go back to the city. He wants to get the one big break that despite encouraging awful, harmful behavior and killing people, Fats also seems to be a strange voice of reason to go back to the city to get things done, to deal with life. But both of these personalities clash and are fighting with each other, which again kind of separates us from what's happening with Penn and Leon, because for the most part, when Leon is controlling Penn, it's in an attempt to be helpful. It's an attempt to uh, resolve a situation or disarm or diffuse anger or to make the day better, to be the hero. And when you've got the back and forth between Fats and, and Corky, they, they, they're just very selfish. One only wants the betterment of the other one, even down to when their life force is extinguished, spoilers alert, at the end of the movie. Fats' final statement is, I just hope I don't die first. They're all very, very selfish. And his whole reasoning was to, what, make this woman leave her husband so he could be happy and get his head on straight. Everything is, uh, and Margaret, everyone is selfish. But two, I think you've got a really, really unique performance from somebody that is more of a song and dance person. I mean, this was a really weird, different type of movie for Anne margaret and I think she did a pretty great job. And I'm just not uh, incredibly familiar with her career outside of Elvis movies, so fuck me, right? <laughs> Well, she's Anna Margaret. She was in a bunch of shit, and she's always looked good. She still yeah. looks good. It looked great in grumpier old 80s. men. How are the how old Anna Margaret is now? Um, but this one's kind of an outlier for the the killer dummy picture, as you put it, because so much of what does work is how everybody treats the material, and everybody is incredibly serious about what they're doing. Uh, Attenborough was incredibly serious about what he was doing, and he doesn't doesn't give it an exploitative feel. I mean, it does. he does give it a horror feel, don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it does feel like a horror film, but it's not like an exploitive horror film. He didn't just slap on a really bright 10K light and just say, fuck it, I don't care, I'm making some schlock. Now, he's really trying to make a classic, like, um, old-school production. Like, it, it, you almost handling like, um, like a giant musical back in the day still giving it all the respect that the material deserves. And that's what truthfully works is everybody's taking this entire thing seriously. The The story is serious. When at the end of the day, it is some schlock. I mean, you could do this. I could it's a killer t- dummy movie. Wait, get $10,000 and make the same exact movie, do the same exact script, but it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't well, be the well, same the at all. Well, that's the whole interesting concept behind this is because really the – this and Penn draw so much from the same well. I mean, they really... you What you just said could really be made an argument between both of these movies because almost the exact same thing happens in both films, but uh-huh. it's handled so completely differently. You've still got a really, really beautiful movie, and I, I can't think of the name of the, the, the ventriloquist movie that uh, I don't know which guy from Saul did it. I think it was Darren Lynn Boosman, oh, maybe. Oh, Dead Silence? Dead Silence. I, I, they both did it. Yeah, I I don't know who was responsible for it. Somebody somebody saw James Wan directed it, and uh, Lee Winnell wrote it. But they both kind of somewhat disown it because they were rushed in making, and they don't think they made a very good movie. I will stand up and say I like Dead Silence, and I think weird. It's okay. 
That yeah, that was the direction I was taking this into. Is in the modern era, I think one of the only really like nicely done and sort of prominent ventriloquist movies that doesn't tack onto the same old thing like the Great Gabo and Devil Doll, like I mentioned, is Dead Silence. Which I, I'll give it to them; it is a rushed movie and does feel incomplete, but. Something I'm sure the audience never thought they'd hear from Death by DVD. We liked Dead Silence. How the fuck about that? Weird. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's an bad. effective movie, and a lot of people bitch about the ending. Like, I saw it come miles away. Oh, bullshit, you saw that coming. You saw part of that coming. You didn't see the entire thing coming. I think, it, overall, it's a pretty decent little schlock horror film, and I am okay with Dead Silence. I will watch it every three or four years and be like, eh, this is still pretty good, and it's well-made. For the most part, I mean, like as far as like, you know, um, as far as production goes, they didn't like cheap out and just kind of not give it respect. If you're going to make a ventriloquist dummy movie, you fucking make it right. God damn it. Well, I think that's where a, a lot of my reasoning for bringing it up comes from is, you know, you've even got like there's a, the Goosebump series, the Slappy, I think the dummy was called. And that literally is a knockoff of Fats for magic. There is so much in the culture now that I think really comes from magic and people trying to replicate the the horror in that movie and what made it unique is the lack of exploitation that you were bringing up it doesn't even really have a hammerish feel there's a film by todd browning called the unholy three uh one of the characters is a ventriloquist and again it's they're always portrayed as very quirky kind of insane people and i think even starting and that's what 1925 to 1929 or so i think like 1925 1926 todd browning um you, you have kind of an archetype with the person behind the dummy is a little quirky, is a little quirky, is insane. And by the time you get to magic, there's been a load of not just exploitation, but even a black and white like classic Twilight Zone episodes and shit. Yeah, it had kind of been completely overdone. So taking the paranormal aspect out of it and turning it into something completely psychological, I think, returned the entire story to horror that yes they used a very worn out archetype of the insane puppeteer or the insane ventriloquist dude what are they called just ventriloquist the insane ventriloquist ventriloquists uh, but it it refreshed it to an extent that you felt emo- i mean you feel bad for him i feel bad for him i i understand the struggle he just wants to be something but he won't let himself do it and everyone at some point in their life self sabotages but i mean he knows he's insane but he self sabotages himself to the extent that people are fucking dying he is he is destroying people's lives and livelihoods and everything in between but the movie, somewhat like Sightseers that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, ends in just a, a devastatingly hysterical manner. I think the ending of this movie is fucking hysterical. And it's not like funny ha-ha, but it's one of those things that if you can't help but laugh at it, I don't know, you just don't have a dark sense of humor. But it the I, I just think he should have closed the dummy's eyes, personally. That would have been the, the final touch, is that... Fats' eyes needed to be closed. <laughs> That's a very particular um, request you have there, my friend. Well, apparently there was going to be a sequel to Pin at some point, but there also was going to be a sequel to Magic, and I don't know if it would be Fats surviving. How the fuck and... would you make a sequel to either of those films? I mean, I I could see with Penn maybe something happening to Leon, or like you had mentioned with the novel, the sister goes crazy in the novel, and the whole thing happens between Leon and the fake Penn, or fake, I, I don't know. But with magic, it would have to be somebody either gets fats, or somebody else just goes crazy, continuing the insane ventriloquist nod, which it's it's a good thing it didn't happen. We don't need a sequel to magic.
we don't need a sequel to these, either of these films. I think they're they're fine the way they are. Uh, I think for the more modern generation, both of these movies would bore the fuck out of them, and I don't care because that's not the kind of podcast we do. We talk about mostly old school stuff. I mean, this I am. I will tell you this right now. I will promise you this. We are not going to do a podcast about host. I don't care about host. I'm tired of hearing about host. Fine. That it's Korean an okay movie? movie on Zoom, but Jesus Christ, everybody is sucking this oh. thing off like crazy. I thought you were talking about that Korean movie from like 2006. No, that movie, I, I enjoy that movie a lot. I'm talking about the, the new thing that's on Shudder. I was so baffled. Like, why are you attacking the host? That's, that's the host. <laughs> this <laughs> is just host. And I haven't watched host. I don't have any like say for it either way. But Christ, you know what? This is not the second coming. We'll get it out of the way. I watched Host. It was fine. It's all right. Yeah, it, that's a, it's okay. But God damn, there's like on Twitter, it's just nothing but articles about how uh, Host is breaking all kinds of boundaries. I'm like, they shot it on Zoom. How many boundaries can you break? There, there wasn't any boundaries broken. And uh, uh, just spoilers. I'm sorry, but at the end of the movie, several of the people end up in the same room. So it really wasn't this whole we shot this entire thing while not being in the same room. Everyone shot their own parts differently. This was done on quarantine. Eh, it, it wasn't. It's it's just like any other footage found movie. I mean, it's just the same bullshit. It, it really offered nothing different to the genre than we've seen a thousand times before. What makes it unique is the spot that it got on Shudder and the fact that it's being promoted as something I don't think it is. And I know this sounds like I'm shitting all over it, but it was all right. It was enjoyable. I mean, it ended just like a Paranormal Activity movie, and I felt it was nothing different to the genre than something like a Paranormal Activity movie, but I applaud it for its effort. I give it a, I don't know, D plus. It wasn't that bad. Uh, I saw Random Acts of Violence. I thought that was pretty goddamn fucking good. Hey, you it's... wrote a, a review of this on uh, Twitter, just to remind the audience, our man with the plan, I, Alexander Nash, is running the Twitter. So, you know, you jump on there, you talk to him, you see what he has to say. But you wrote a review for this and you posted it on Twitter, and it's got my interest. You you actually got Jay's interest also. So, that's kind of cool. I'll never know how to pronounce his last name. Marshall, the director. Uh, you might know him from uh, This is the End or un, uh, Undeclared. He's an actor, mostly. But he directed this movie, and it's not like it's like crazy plotted or anything. It's just a lot of the violence in it was handled incredibly seriously, and it kind of made me sick. Uh, it was just... Because it was mostly just how serious we took the violence. They took the violence. It wasn't... Like it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a like a slasher film. Like this is gonna be like oh, it's a fun to watch teens getting killed. And like no, 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 no. This is like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. When people get murdered, it fucking sucks, and it's a horrible thing. And that's how they treated the material. And I found that incredibly refreshing and interesting more than anything. It was just like ah shit. You know, sometimes horror isn't fucking fun. Sometimes it is people's lives that are getting taken, and that really fucking sucks. I guess it's a big difference from something like the the new Halloween films, you'd say. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't feel anything. Those are all horror films where it's violence for the sake of a good time, which I'm all down for, too. I love cheesy slasher films. I love Friday 13th movies. But sometimes when you make a thing where it's a slasher film and the violence is abrupt and rabid and just like it's 
actually someone's life being taken in front of your eyes and you're making me feel that, that's an interesting feeling as well. So something like, uh, you know, that, that feeling you get with some of the violence uh, shown in Green Room, especially when the dogs or yes. the hand scene is happening. It, it, I think the thing and the key to that is it's not necessarily realistic violence. It's realistic situations, realistic characters and realistic scenarios is really what can dr- drive things over the top. And I know what you're saying. How realistic could Green Room be? But... It's pretty realistic for a lot of people. I mean, it just matters on what you're into and where you're at, but just take yourself out of the punk scene and imagine yourself as a, an African-American guy at a traffic stop. It's not even in this film that the, the situation is even realistic because it's not. It's more of just how they take the violence and they don't make any sort of qualms about what it is, that this is like these are people's lives being taken we take time to almost mourn at times and to feel bad for it. It's not just violence for the sake of violence and it being just this incredibly like good time. Cause it's not always a good time, but you know, sometimes you watch the burning and it is a good time. I'd watch Glazer get killed over and over again. Fuck that guy. I like the raft murder myself. That one always gets me. It's just not watching the kids die. It's just good and gets stabbed in the throat, hands getting cut off. It's sleazy. I enjoy it. So I think this was a successful double feature, but really it's kind of funny. Both of the movies are so incredibly the same thing. And it's just a concept I've talked about a lot before, but I just love, like, the Cabin Fever remake. It was fucking abhorrent, but the... The reasoning behind it, the point behind it, I just love taking the same idea, the exact same thing, and doing it completely over again and seeing how it happens. There's something unique about repetition. So as a double feature, I really do suggest check out as we did this. Watch Pen first, and then slip into the insanity of magic as the midnight hour approaches. And magic really is a movie you can treat to you know, some alcohol or get a little stoned. It helps. If you're feeling a little bit more lucid, there's a really fucking... There's two two really psychotic scenes. You've got the one with Anne-Margaret where they're attempting to do the psychic scene, where they're attempting... He wants to... He's got a deck of cards, and he gives Anne-Margaret... Concentrate! You're not... Two people want something enough that it's going to happen! Uh, and he never quite loses his Welsh accent throughout the entire movie, but it's got this weird displaced upper upstate New York twang, so it's really, really psychotic. But they, they do this whole card trick where he's got a deck of cards and she's got a deck of cards... He's attempting to figure out what her card is. Later you find out, well, Fats lets us know. He spills the beans. That it's just another trick. It's something that he's using to his advantage. Again, going back to the fact that Corky knows what he's doing. He's aware of what's going on the entire time when he uses people, when he abuses people, when he hurts them, when he uh, goes into their soul. He knows how to manipulate. Well, I mean, it's all a trick. And that's something that's explained throughout the movie. There's a trick, and then there's magic. And... He, I mean, what, what, there's a quote that defines it. Fats does the tricks. Corky does the magic. And then again, you've got the, the, I think, the most powerful scene of the movie is when Corky is going through the rows with Fats, and Fats is telling him, bark like a dog, jump up and down, Simon says spin around, get a knife, and it's just, 
the most manic, batshit performance I think you'll ever see from Sir Anthony Hopkins. It's it's pretty wonderful. You don't get that much tenacity out of Penn. You don't really go That's into That's coming the from zone. a guy who played a cannibal at one point, I mean, for fuck's sakes. I mean, God, he played the most somber, quiet, uh, polite cannibal of all time, though, so it didn't really fit in as, as, as deeply as it would. Uh, what, a year after this, a year or so after this, he would go on to make The Elephant Man with David Lynch. 1980, this was, what, shot in the 77 came out in 78 so, so a year and a half later he went on to i think one of the best roles of his career and then went i think he worked with um richard what three times before this he was in chaplin and i think one or two other films with richard attenborough they worked together very successfully and is a pretty good partnership for most of their career some richard attenborough and uh anthony hopkins facts <laughs> at the end of the show yeah i mean <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah, so at the end of this, I guess I could recommend check out A Bridge Too Far by Richard Attenborough and Sir Anthony Hopkins, or maybe uh, Chaplin, if you will. I don't think he's in Gandhi, but that was the next film Attenborough made. I should have looked up the name of that movie that he made with Nicole Williams, and you know, but it's too late for that. Google it yourself. I think the ashtray is empty and the bottle is uh, full. Wait, what? That's so backwards, but go for it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You got anything, or is this show over? Nope. Show's over. On the next episode of Death by DVD, the genius director of a Pentagon-funded think tank murders a colleague to prevent his overprivileged son from being exposed as a plagiarist. But another kind of genius is on the case. Lieutenant Hank, the world's greatest. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DDD. It's a statement. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience.